0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 44. You can find it on page 470 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Psalm 44. Oh God, we have heard with our ears... Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them." You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Michael Prevetera. I'm one of the pastors here and serve as a campus minister at Xavier University. Uh, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that I was super tempted to leave my sermon in my seat and be like, oh, I forgot my sermon, and then make Zach run it up here again. Uh, but I did not, so I'll spare you all that. But um, that would have been great. Oh, so one of my, uh, my, one of my biggest frustrations with uh, the new Star Wars trilogy, hard, hard pivot here, was what J.J. Abrams did to Han Solo's story arc. Uh, now, if you remember uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, Return of the Jedi, the Galaxy is happy, and enemies defeated, and uh, Han Solo lives happily ever after and flies off into the galactic sunset, all right? Uh, Well, and then The Force Awakens came out in, I don't know, 2016 or something like that, and uh, what happens to Harrison Ford and Han Solo is that his son, Ben Solo, takes him out with a lightsaber. Um, I don't like watching bad things happen to good people, and it really ruined uh, his story arc for me. It's uh, this is also another reason I could never get into the the, the series of unfortunate events series. Uh, the story and the show and the movie. Uh, I know it's it's bigger than this, but it's essentially a, a story about a series of unfortunate events happening to a group of siblings. I just I know I know it's bigger than that, but that initial kind of plot device just didn't work for me. You've probably also seen the horrible images coming out of Hawaii this week from the devastating wildfires and the destruction left in the fire's wake. But even more relevant, there are countless stories of heartache and pain represented in this very room. Uh, Some of it's very fresh, some of it's decades old. We've all experienced trauma and pain and the general unfairness in the world around us. Suffering is a universal in the human experience. And we often ask the question, why? do bad things happen to good people? Or why do bad things happen to innocent people? That is a question that has, again, plagued humanity for centuries. No one has an issue with the idea of justice, where uh, bad people or someone who's done something wrong gets what they deserve. But when we see people who've done nothing wrong suffer, we are filled with anger and sadness and despair. And also, the reality is when bad things happen unexpectedly or undeservedly, it can shake us to the core. The skeptical biblical scholar Bart Ehrman cites the juxtaposition of suffering in the world and the idea of a good God as a major factor that caused him to lose faith. He writes, in talking about suffering, he says, where is God in all this? To say that he will eventually make right all that is wrong seems to me now to be pure, wishful thinking. I could no longer explain how there could be a good and all-powerful God actively involved in this world Given the state of things, the problem of suffering became for me the problem of faith. Along the same lines, the British, British comedian Eddie Izzard once quipped, if there is a God, his plan is very similar to someone not having a plan. This is what philosophers, philosophers call theodicy, or the problem of evil. Right? How can there be an all-powerful and loving God In the face of a colossal amount of evil that exists in the world and our own lives. Now the simple answer is, the biblical answer, is that we live in a fallen and broken world. And things are not the way that they should be. And that's why we have this sense of injustice. But, while that might be the right answer, it's not an emotionally satisfying answer, isn't it? Questions like, why do bad things happen to good people, are actually really good questions. Human questions, in fact, they're not a sign of a lack of faith, but someone who's actually wrestling with faith. Tish Harrison Warren, in an interview about her book, Prayer in the Night, says that struggling with the reality of evil in the world is something bigger than just being confused or unfaithful. She said, it is a longing for God to take action. It is a deep, almost primordial ache for a world that is whole and good and good. So theodicy, or the problem of evil, can't be answered or solved like a math problem. It is a mystery to be endured. I think she's on the right track with that line of thinking. Um, I am not proposing this morning to solve this millennia-old question about suffering, and we're not going to be able to do full justice on this topic in 20 minutes or so. Uh, And I don't think that's the purpose of this psalm either, actually, We don't know a lot about the situation the psalm addresses, and it was written by the sons of Korah, who were temple musicians. Uh, They wrote it generically, perhaps, even. Uh, We don't know if this is addressing a real situation or just as, as kind of like a metaphor or a model for any type of tragedy or suffering we might experience. But the psalm is asking really good and authentic questions like, God, where are you? Why are these things happening? Psalm 44 as a whole provides a roadmap or maybe even just best practices for how to live and pray when things are bad. This was written for the worship of the people of God, after all. It was given to God's people in Israel and also to us to guide us how we are to respond when we experience great suffering or when we see great suffering in the world. So let's dive in to this and see what we find out you look at the opening verses of Psalm 44, notice how it begins. There is, as we'll find out later as we read through this, some heavy things going on in the life of God's people. Uh, But the psalm doesn't start there, right? Some psalms will start there, like, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, right? But this psalm begins by dwelling on God's goodness and power for his people in the past. They say, God, we've heard about what you've done for us in the past, we know that you gave us the land that we now dwell in and saved us. And we know that we didn't get any of this by our, our power or our own might. It's all a gift from you. And you are king, and through you we'll defeat our enemies. We don't hope in our own power and school, skill, but in you alone. When things get bad, it's very tempting to forget that God is good or that he even cares. And so there's something really powerful about starting here, clinging to God's goodness in the midst of pain. Sometimes we, when we're in the middle of suffering, we catastrophize the future in light of our present suffering, right? Things are always going to be terrible, never going to get better again. Sometimes we minimize the good things we've experienced in the past. Sometimes we let our problems and our hurts define reality for us. But there's a reminder here that as God's people, when we face tragedy, we need to cling to the big, basic truths of God. In Israel's case, it was God delivered our people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and gave us this land. We did nothing to earn it. That's, that's our story. That's our background. Let's cling to that promise and that truth. But for you or me, maybe in the middle of suffering, it's saying to yourself, God is good despite what I'm experiencing. Remembering that God is for you. Or maybe you're thinking God has blessed me with good things in the past and God will see me through this too. If you are currently in a bad place, um, first of all, I'm I'm really sorry to hear that. I've been there myself, and I know what that's like. And I am uh, not promising an easy solution or answers, but if you're in a bad place and you're struggling to understand what's going on or why or trusting in God, one place to start might be to begin to make a list of all the good things God has done and provided for you in life. And maybe it's as, as simple as starting in the present and working backward, right? Today, I woke up. Today, I'm alive. Yesterday was really hard, but God gave me food to eat and a place to sleep. God's given me a job. Whatever. We're just listing the simple things and recognizing those two are gifts from God. So thinking about the past, God's goodness in the past. But also in verses 4 to 8, we see the writers of the psalm Uh, look to god's present power to save right so there's this calling to meditate not only on how god has been there for us in the past but also how he is presently caring and providing for us in spite of the hard things going on and so psalm 44 encourages us first to cling to god's goodness in the face of hard things now at the same time it's okay to be honest Right? Sometimes in the church, we are tempted to be positive about life. Uh, there's this myth out there that you're, if you're positive all the time, things will be okay, right? If you manifest positivity into the universe, you'll get positivity back, or something like that. Um, we're told, don't draw on the negatives, don't complain, don't worry, be happy. Remember the power of positive thinking, or just have faith in God, right? That's also called denial. Uh, as someone who's never been tempted to be overly positive, and if you know me, that's, that's true, um, I am thankful that there is more to this psalm than just verses 1 to 8. Because at the same time, as the writer clings to God's past help and power, this psalm encourages us to go to God with our struggles and hurts. The biblical category for this is lament. It's an honest cry to God about our ta- pain. Look at verses 9 to 16 again. The psalmist's right, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You, they're talking to God, right? You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten the spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations, and so on. This goes on for, for a while. Here's the deal. Two things can be true at once, right? Uh, you don't have to pit trusting God, against lamenting your circumstances. You don't have to pit those two things against each other. They can exist in the same space at the same time. Trust in God is not just toxic positivity, and lament is not a lack of faithfulness. Right? Life, is, life is messy and complicated, isn't it? I mean, think about this. A new parent, maybe you've had this experience, a new parent can look at their infant child and feel both incredible love for this, this beautiful baby And also this aching fear that they've made a colossal mistake and that their life, as they've known, it is over. I have been there myself. Um, Sometimes there's a place in our lives for heavy-duty lament. Sometimes we need to fix our eyes on God's goodness in spite of our circumstances. Sometimes we need to do both. And you can do both. And that's what's going on here. You are our king, and you have rejected us and disgraced us those two ideas are not mutually exclusive in the scriptures. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble. A lot of folks who have, like Bart Ehrman, for example, or other folks who maybe have left faith, or when you've been tempted to lose faith, or uh, these issues, we've missed out. We always think, if, my, if there is a God, my life will be great all the time. Only great. Never bad things. If there's a, if there's a good God. And that is way too simplistic. And the Bible actually never promises that or, or, or shows that. The Bible is very real about the fact that we live in this messy and broken world and that life is very complicated and hard at times. And so Psalm 44 calls us to cling to God, but also to be honest and real about the things that we're experiencing and the depths of our pain. And you can do those things at the same time. Now, the psalmist doesn't end with lament. He calls, actually, God to take action. They call God to take action. And if you, if you read this again, look at verses 23 to 36. It's kind of cleaned up in the ESV. It sounds very nice. Rise up, oh Lord. Uh, it's a, but it's really actually a stunning way to talk to the creator of all reality who has the power over life and death. Look at how the message puts it. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It's actually really faithful to the original Hebrew. Uh, but he says, get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? And here we are, flat on our faces in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks. Get up and come to our rescue. If you love us so much, help us. Man, have you ever prayed like that? I am, I have, but I'm not sure how often I do that. In fact, I, if I'm honest, I'm a little scared to pray like that because it seems kind of disrespectful, doesn't it? Or unfaithful or maybe even sinful based on just our church culture and how we've been raised. But it's in the scriptures. So it's, and, and it's given to us to, to pray. So it can't be any of those things. Maybe it's actually a sign of absolute trust and security in the people's relationship with God. If you have kids, or think about little kids for just a second, Um, When my kids were little, right, they didn't come up to me and say, Oh, great father, you who have all power and money to purchase the sweet pasteurized nectar from the apples of the orchard. If it be your will, arise from your seat of comfort and make my cup runneth over. Not my will, but yours be done. No, no right? You're all laughing because you know that doesn't happen. My kids would yell, and they still do this, they would yell from whatever room they happen to find themselves in the minute, even if I was on the other side of the house or on a different floor or whatever, and say, Daddy, get me juice! And that was it. Uh, we have to socialize kids into asking different, right? We have to, we have to socialize them the saying please and thank you, but their boldness in asking is is because they want something, and they know that their father who loves them can get them what they need. Right? As, as much as I want my kids to say please and thank you, if there's an emergency or if they're in like, real desperate need, I do not care. Right? If they're like, Dad, help, the couch is on fire. Or, Dad, help, I stabbed my hand with a steak knife. I don't care. <laughs> That's never happened. Uh, I don't care if they say please or thank you. I will hear them and come to their aid. Because it's a desperate situation. It doesn't matter. And whatever is happening in Israel's life in this psalm, it's desperate. Right? They know their weakness and their powerlessness. And they know they need God to save them. And it's okay to pray what's really going in your heart. And it's okay to pray boldly like this. As raw as un- and unfiltered as it might be. Because, after all, God knows what you're thinking. Number one, he's God. Uh, and two, it's, it's, it's honest. It's being honest, and it's even better than not praying. So pray boldly about what's going on when you encounter great suffering or pain or you see it in the world. It's okay to ask God why he's not doing anything. And, you know, there's probably a bit of justified anger going on here a little bit because one of the striking features of this psalm is that the writers are pretty confident about the fact that they've done nothing wrong to deserve what's happening. Back to that, why do bad things happen to good people question. You know, in some Psalms, it's very clear. The writers are like, I screwed up, God, and I deserve all this stuff that's happening to me, but please save me. This one there, we've not done anything wrong. We've not abandoned your covenant. Why is this happening? And, you know, in situations like this, there are two stories in the Scriptures which can guide us a little bit to the why question. We'll never fully get the answers, but there's at least some examples in Scripture we could tap into um, to help understand maybe some rationale. First is the book of Job. Right, Job was a righteous man who lost everything and yet refused to renounce God. And in the book there's clear, there's this element of spiritual warfare going on, right? Satan in the book of Job is the one responsible for what happens to him. As the apostle Peter wrote, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so there is this element of like, sometimes bad things are from opposition. Dark spiritual forces of evil. That's real. And then there's the story of the patriarch Joseph. Joseph endured hardship at the hands of family members and was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he also endured hardship from those who enslaved him. And yet at the end of his life, he's able to say to his brothers, who he's reconciled with, as for you, this is the book of Genesis, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. In other words, the story of Joshua shows that sometimes God mysteriously uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. But then sometimes you just can't know. You won't know. Maybe not until you see God face to face in the kingdom. Sometimes what we experience is just the brokenness of the world and the sin of humanity just taking a swing at us. The why of suffering may not always be clear, but the how of suffering is very clear in this psalm. One of the ways of how do we suffer well? How do we, what do we do in the midst of suffering when we find ourselves in that place, when we see evil and injustice in the world? Well, the psalm's clear. Cling to God, lament what's happening, and boldly call on God to act. That's not a magic formula. It may not change anything, but it gives us a roadmap for what this looks like. It's not unfaithful to lament your pain. It's not unfaithful to question why God is not doing anything. It's not unfaithful to boldly call on God to act. We have permission to do all those things right here in this psalm. There was a time in my life, uh, years ago, several years ago, when our family was going through some intense pain and suffering. Like, really heavy, like I was doubting God Heavy kind of stuff as a pastor, and I remember I came home one day and was sitting in my car before I went in the house, um, just wrestling with all of this and questioning God and everything that was going on. And I was praying. I was like, God, if you're gonna let stuff like this happen, what's the point of even serving you? Right? Are you even good? Why? And at that point, while I'm sitting in the driveway not going in the house yet, it occurred to me that I had logically had three options. Now, this doesn't always happen. I I think the Lord was walking with us through me. I don't work things out like this all the time. But I I, I realized I had three options at that point after praying that. First, option one, that there was no God, Uh, which means that life is just a cosmic accident and has no meaning or purpose. And that didn't sit well with me as a pastor. I was like, I don't think that one's right. Um, Option two was that God isn't good. Which means he's not worthy of worship, and he's a liar. And all this Christianity stuff is a joke still, again. And that also didn't work with me. It just didn't, didn't sit right. And then option three came to me, this idea that my God has scars. And in that moment, I didn't, didn't really explain anything. I didn't explain the why, didn't give me answers. It didn't make things feel better. But the idea that my God has scars was incredibly comforting because I knew in that moment that God wasn't standing far off and just sitting back and watching what happened. But he He knew exactly what I was feeling because he'd been there. Psalm 44 ends on this note about God's steadfast covenant love. Right, The psalmist writes, redeem us for the sake of of your steadfast love, which means something more actually than just rescue us because you love us. The word for steadfast love is hesed in Hebrew, and it refers back to God's covenantal promises that he made to Israel to be their God and to be for them. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, you promised to be our God. You promised to protect us, redeem us because of the covenant you have made with us. Be faithful to your promises. It's a pretty incredible prayer reminding God to be faithful to what he said he'd do. But Christian, do you know that you are in a better situation to be able to pray the same thing on the promises of a better covenant? And that covenant is the covenant that God has made with us in Christ, which is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants. It's the promise made to us in Christ Jesus. Because the God of scars has a name. It's Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief. In fact, the scripture tells that God saw the brokenness of the world and the injustice all around us and the evil and he decided to do something about it. He came in the flesh to fight and destroy the power of evil in the world. But not like a, a Marvel superhero, right? With like the Avengers with punching and powers, but more like Iron Man. Kids if you've seen this movie, uh, Iron Man in Endgame who sacrifices himself to defeat evil Thanos, which actually the name Thanos is related to the Greek word for death. It's really interesting. Iron Man sacrifices himself to defeat death. Scriptures tell us that Jesus was the innocent victim who faced an unjust legal system, who was tortured by evil men and an evil government, and was hung up to die on two cross beams of wood. Soon after my uh, theological debate with myself, I bought this crucifix hang up on my wall you can't probably really see the detail but it was like the bloodiest crucifix i could find um it's really it's pretty realistic there's lots of blood there's scars you can see the the marks of the scourges and the whips that jesus was beaten with all over his arms and legs and i just i needed that to be reminded of every day when i got up just to look at that To be reminded that my jesus has scars that he knows what it is to be abandoned by his friends and beat up. He knows what it is to be rejected and to experience like intense trauma. Like, I just needed to see that he had gone before me and to be reminded of that continually. That, that he was the one who cried out in pain from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the one who could have called down a legions of angels to rescue him. But he stayed, and he stayed there in that situation to conquer death and evil and pain and suffering and trauma. And by doing this, he trampled down death by death. That is the message that the Church of Jesus Christ has proclaimed for 2,000 years, that in some mysterious way, By death, by his suffering, Jesus has defeated the powers of evil in the world. These things no longer, they still exist, but they no longer have the final word in our lives. That God is for us. That God is on our side. In fact, the name Jesus, Yeshua, means God saves. And as a sign that these things didn't have the last word, he rose from the dead and is now reigning and ruling over all things. And that's why we're still talking about this Jewish rabbi from the first century 2,000 years ago today. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is when the resurrected Jesus appears to Thomas, his disciple. And Thomas had, he's known as Doubting Thomas. He said, unless I see his hands... in in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger to the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side I will never believe and Thomas says this to the other disciples and then the next day Jesus shows up and he says to Thomas put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe and Thomas answers him my Lord and my God Jesus said to him Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Our God has scars, and He invites us to touch them. Man, we are still waiting for the day as God's people when all the sad things will come untrue but the promise of the gospels is that there will be a day when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever and that's why the apostle paul can say in romans 8:18 8, for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed to us that in some way when the kingdom comes the sufferings that we experience and the injustice that we see all around us will be like a blip it'll be like nothing compared to the glory and the hope and the joy that we have as God's people. And in that same section of Romans 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 44 and concludes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's something to meditate on when you're experiencing suffering and injustice, that nothing, not even your pain, not even your suffering can separate you from God's love, even though it may not feel like it. Psalm 44 trains us for the hard days, even when we don't have an answer to the why question. So in those moments when you find yourself in those hard times, remember Christ, the God with scars. Remember what God has done. Don't be afraid to lament what's going on, and call upon him to act. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our king and our God, and yet there's times in all our lives where we felt like you rejected us we experience just the hard things in the world and the pain and suffering all around us, that I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that you would remind us of your love for us in your scars and your passion. Do you remind us that you have gone before us, that you are for us, that you love us, that you did all these things. You came to save us, and that you can save us even when life is hard that you can work bad things for good, that you can bring beauty out of ashes. Lord, sustain us by your Spirit and give us the hope of the glory to come where the sufferings of the present age will not be worth comparing. In the meantime, strengthen our faith to cling to you and cling to your promises even when we doubt. Thank you, Lord, that even if we are faithless, you remain faithful pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our
0: Savior. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.